0: Let's uh, turn to the second letter that we read there, but reading in chapter three, and just the first verse of the chapter, Galatians chapter three. You'll find that on page one seven nine zero, where Paul uh, addresses the Galatians very directly and in a very emotional way too, and says to them, "Oh foolish!" Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? And especially just the opening part of that question, which can really stand alone, who has bewitched you? who has bewitched you. Now it's not often that uh, one word uh, sheds so much light on a letter or an epistle, but we've got a case in point here. This word uh, translated bewitch is only used once in the New Testament. It occurs often enough in the Greek world outside of that, but only once in the New Testament. And it literally means to cast a spell That's what the word means, to cast a spell, something like a a witch or a demonic power would do. But strange as it may seem, the use here of that word actually sheds a lot of light on the situation that was prevailing in Galatia. It helps us to understand why the Apostle was writing, who he was writing to what the problem was and how the problem was to be put right. Now of course when we talk about who he's writing to uh, it's obvious that he's writing to as he calls them himself the churches plural in Galatia. Several congregations in an area called Galatia or even the Roman province called Galatia. That's located in modern day Turkey. Many people go to Turkey for holidays Turkey is full of the sites of early Christian churches it's a reminder to us that all these lands which are now so much under the shadow of Islam were once of course Christian lands they became Christian lands by the power of the word they became Islamic lands by the power of the sword Um, But we pray that the day the psalmist spoke of and sang about would come about again when these lands and all lands will once again become the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this letter is written to churches in Galatia. These churches are bound together in a Presbyterian relationship. Just as the Old Testament synagogues were bound together, They were all under a common government, so are the New Testament churches. They exist as Presbyterian churches, ruled by eldership, interconnected one with another. And although these Galatian people had their own language, and Paul probably spoke to them in their own language, you'll remember that the gift of tongues or languages was poured on the early church in the days of the Apostles, to allow the easy and quick spread of the gospel. Paul tells us that he was endowed himself personally with more languages than anyone else. So he probably took um, the language that belonged to these Galatian people and spoke the gospel in that language. But interestingly, the letter is written in Greek. It's written in Greek because that would be the official language of the people, the courtly legal language, it would also be, of course, a letter that was destined in God's plan and purpose to be included in the Scriptures of the New Testament. Therefore, he writes it, and under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, he writes it in the Greek language. So it's not just for the congregations in Galatia, it's for you and for me too. Now, sometimes we struggle Maybe, we shouldn't really, but sometimes we do struggle trying to make a connection between ourselves and the people to whom these letters were written. In this case, <coughs> in all cases, in fact, in the New Testament, nearly 2,000 years ago. Um, you struggle to think of how you can cross the centuries and cross the cultures to meet the people who lived in Galatia, that far away and that long ago. But I just want to encourage you not to exaggerate the difficulties in doing that. Um, The longer you live, uh, the more you begin to understand yourself that there is nothing new under the sun. Things come and go in cycles all the time. It's in that connection that Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. Cycles of fashion. Cycles of behavior. Things of that kind, they come and by God's grace, if they are evil, they go. And the fact of the matter is that people are basically the same always and everywhere. They have the same problems, and it is only the one solution that will meet those problems. That has always been the case. It doesn't matter where in the world or when the problem existed. The gospel was the only answer to it. And the same is still true today. There are many problems, not least in our own nation, and people are looking around for an answer, and there is no answer except the one that's always been there, staring us in the face. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has the power to change a heart, to change a family, to change a village and a town and a city and a nation. The gospel does that. It does what no other philosophy or theory or political planning can do. But it's easier for us to identify with the Galatians than it is to identify pretty much with anybody else. And the reason for that is because, well I don't know everyone here tonight, but I think it's probably true that well over 90% of us are the same people as the Galatians. The word Galatia is the same word as Gaeltach. It's the same word. It means the land of the Gaul, or the land of the Gael. The Gael and the Gaul are the same people. So Galatia is the land of the Gael's, land of the Gaul's. Their language would be a form of the Celtic languages. Of course, related to Gallic, which is itself related to the Gaeltach and to Gaul. And Galatian. So Paul spoke a language that is quite akin to our own. Certainly the Galatians spoke it. Now the meaning of Galatia or Gaeltach is actually the land of the fair. The land of the fair. Gyal. Now normally if you speak Gaelic you use Gyal you use for white. But actually the original meaning of Gyal of, uh, is fair pale yellow. That's why the moon is Galach. It's a pale yellow colour. Fair colour. And like yourselves, these Galatian people were not called fair or gal uh, because they had fair hair, but because they had fair skin. And when the Gauls originally left the land of Germany essentially near the Danube, they migrated west into France and Britain and they migrated east towards Turkey the same people and the Gealtark in the west and the land of Gaul in France is populated by the same people as the land of Turkey or Galatia as it was then called and of course the minute they appeared Uh, In that part of the world, in Turkey, they immediately stood out because of their fair skin. Um, These things are so different. We're used to uh, cosmopolitan cultures, and people don't strike us by appearance. But if you're largely homogenous, and somebody comes in that looks completely different, well, some of us are familiar with that, even in the past generation, people had never really seen somebody of another color. And when they did, it was quite an astonishing thing. And so immediately they were labeled... As white skinned people. And they continued as a distinct people group in Turkey right up until the 4th and 5th centuries. Of course, the idea of a a fair skinned people stuck in Scotland. When the Romans uh, came here, they they called us Alba, uh, which again is the Latin word for white like the albumen of an egg, the white of an egg, or an albino, and so on. And the the real original name of this country is Alba, really. It becomes Scotland later, but Alba is the land of the fair-skinned, just as Galatia is the land of the fair-skinned. So we have an affinity with these people. It's as simple as that. Uh, We come from the same stock as them. Now, it won't be a surprise to you once you say that, and if you know something of our own history, it won't come as a surprise to you that these people were renowned in Galatia for being a superstitious people. They were heavily into things that some of ourselves can remember, like the evil eye and the casting of spells and things of that kind. They were governed over there, just as we were governed here, by the Druids, who were a kind of priestly caste of people. They were skilled in medicine, um, jurisprudence as well, but they were essentially priestly. And uh, they would use the powers of nature and the gods that supposedly lay behind them, and they would pronounce spells on people, and uh, sadly delude people, or... Uh, manipulate people into doing what they wanted them to do themselves. All that will become very plain when we turn to the Galatians in a moment. In a way, these druids were not unlike the wise men that Daniel speaks of in the land of Persia and in Babel, just another priestly uh, knowledgeable class of people uh, who used the dark arts, the magic arts uh, to manipulate people in certain ways. Now when we understand all that, it's easy to understand why Paul takes this word and uses it here. When he when he's speaking to a people who have known the gospel and embraced it, and now as he says himself in chapter one, who are turning away so quickly from it, it's no wonder that he essentially says, Foolish Galatians, he says, who has cast a spell? Paul is not saying, of course, that that's exactly what has happened, that somebody has cast a spell on them, although there's more to it than we might think, which will come to another time. But Paul is saying that that's really what it's like. It's as though they had something, and now they just seem to be given over to something else. Uh, And he, he finds it almost impossible to believe that having changed so wonderfully once, they now seem to be changing into something else. He calls it another gospel. He says that there are people preaching another gospel. If you just cast your eyes back to chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, I marvel, I marvel, he says, that you are turning away so soon From him, that is God, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. Yes, it's another, he says, in one sense, but it's not another in another sense. It's a different gospel, he says, because it's not the gospel I really gave you. It's not justification by faith and sanctification by grace and so on. It's not that. And therefore, he says, it's not actually another. It's not a real gospel. It's a different one, but it's not a genuine piece of good news. Far from it. He's warning them that if, if they continue in this direction that they're traveling in, they will fall away from the Lord. So there's a sense in which Paul says, and we'll see this more clearly in a second, he says that they've moved away from the power of one spell, a good spell, the gospel, spell, they've moved away from that to the power of another spell. Not a good one this time, but an evil spell that the powers of evil have cast upon them. Now to understand all that better, and this is just laying a bit of groundwork here, we need to look a little more closely at the word Spell. We've got to spend a little time on, on words first before again we can build things up properly. The word spell is a word that stares you in the face every time you come in here. Words are important, by the way. You learn a lot by looking at words, how they were formed, how they were used, how they crossed cultures, how they changed their shape, why they changed their shape, and so on. But the word spell is a word that you're familiar with, really. It's an old Germanic word. Notice that it connects to the Gauls, to the Gaelic people. It connects to them. And the meaning of spell is story. That's what the word spell means. If I was to spell something out to you, I would be telling you a story. Normally, of course, when we use the word spell today, we use it for spelling something out letter by letter. Can you spell that word? Although we still sometimes use the word spell for a story. For example, if I said something to you, you could say, well, can you just spell that out to me? By that you mean tell me the story. That's what the word spell means first. Now you've all got a spell in your hands tonight. You've got four spells. You've got The spell according to Matthew, the spell according to Mark, the spell according to Luke, and the spell according to John. It's called the ghost spell, originally the good spell, not the God spell, but the good spell, good story. The second OD has just dropped out through time, and you're left with the word gospel, which means good story, or good news, as you have in the Greek. Humangelion, the evangel, the good news. What is an evangelical thing? It is something that has good news. An evangelical person has good news. An evangelical message is good news. The gospel is good news. Good news for fallen sinners like you and me. It's a good story. It's a, a God spell, a gospel. You've, you've got a good story in your hands. That's why we're familiar with the word spell. Now, a good story had the power to grip you, of course, and to hold you so that you were under a spell. Or, if you like, spellbound. If you were listening to something spellbound, it's because the story gripped you and got a hold of you. Now, what's happened, essentially, to the Galatians... First of all, is that they came under the power of a good story. They came under the spell of the gospel. But there was also such a thing as a, a bad story, or a bad form of words. And if someone wanted to inflict pain upon you, they would use an evil eye, they could cast an evil eye upon you, or they could chant or encamp a spell. A form of words that would put a curse upon you. Maybe a curse upon your family. That is how the word is still used. Casting a spell. But it's important to remember that a good spell can be cast by the Holy Spirit of God. An evil spell can be cast by an evil spirit. Now Paul is really using all these ideas inside this verse. It doesn't appear to us on the surface, but you've got the good spell and the bad spell. First of all, when he says foolish Galatians, he says, who has cast a bad spell on you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly spelled out properly among you as crucified. You came under the spell of the gospel and now You're under the spell of something that is not the Gospel at all. Now normally when we would (coughs) look at a letter like this I suppose we we would be inclined and we intend to do do that really with this letter but we'd be inclined just to begin at the beginning and work our way through it. But I think it might be useful just for some of the reasons that I've said to begin really with this verse here and to think about what's happened to the Galatians and what is happening to the Galatians and how Paul deals with it. And for the next few weeks I want us to consider two things. First of all, how the good story came to them and how they received it. And second, how the evil story came to them and how they received that. That's very straightforward, really. A good spell and a bad spell. How did the good story come to them and how did they receive it? and then how the evil story came, and how they received it. Now, tonight, let's just focus on the good story of the Gospel, and how it came to them. Now, it's an interesting thing that Paul did not actually expect to preach the Gospel in Galatia. That was not his plan. He had a certain plan in his first missionary journey, but he was open, of course, to being redirected by God at any single point. And that really, by the way, as a rule of thumb, is just how you're supposed to live your life anyway. You're supposed to lay plans and be prepared to be redirected at any point by God when he sees fit. I don't know what plan Jonah had. He was a regular prophet, preaching and teaching in Israel I don't know what plan he had where he was going to go next but of course God intervened and told him to go to Nineveh which was not of course in his plan or something that he wanted to do but that's how we live the Christian life, it's a responsible thing to plan, to make plans but always to be open, to be redirected and God can sometimes suddenly and surprisingly redirect you through the power of his word and through providence And when these voices speak together, when these two voices are harmonious, word and providence, then in the mouth of these two witnesses it is established. Sometimes, of course, the word can speak on its own. If it speaks on its own, that's the end of the matter. It doesn't matter what providence is like. But if the word is not explicit to you, in prayer you will be guided by the juxtaposing of both word and providence. No, know, there are examples of this in Paul's life, and one of them is in connection with Galatia. We're told in the book of Acts, which chronicles his missionary journeys, <coughs> we're told uh, that he had a certain plan, a certain direction, when they went through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now that's always been a mystery, really. I mean, we don't know what God's reasons are. His thoughts are way above ours. Come to this in a second, too. Just way above ours. He has his own plans because we wonder at a human level how different things might have been had Paul gone into Asia, how different the story of the gospel would be. But for some reason and in some way the Holy Spirit forbade him preaching the word in Asia. And then just in the following verse we're told that they tried to go into the Roman province of Bithynia but the Spirit did not permit them. So they go that way, blockage, and this way, blockage. And it's a blockage that Paul discerned to be of the Holy Spirit. Now some blockages are to be overcome. Other blockages are to be accepted as being from God. Paul discerned that this was the Holy Spirit. And when they stopped in Troas, a vision came to Paul in the night. And Troas is on the very west of Turkey. He saw across the sea from, from Greece he saw a man beckoning. saw this in a vision. In the night a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded saying to him come over to Macedonia and help us Paul said immediately after he had seen the vision we sought to go to Macedonia concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel there so of course he went there and arrived at Philippi the result is the Philippian church and so on now in Galatia you step back and say, well, why did Paul go there in the first place? And he tells us it's because he was sick. (coughs) Now, whatever the reason, it was convenient for him to go to Galatia while he was sick. He was too weak to go on, but he wasn't too weak to preach. In chapter 4 here, and in verse 13, he says, you know... That because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at 1st just put that the other way around. I preached the gospel to you at first because of physical infirmity. And my trial, which was in my flesh, in other words, he obtained, I think this is a reference to his thorn in the flesh, personally, He says, my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as though you were receiving Christ Jesus himself. So although he was too weak to go on, he wasn't too weak to preach. And so he declares the word of God, and when he does that, he begins to cast a spell. The Holy Spirit begins to cast a spell because whenever the gospel is lifted up and when the form of good words is used a spell is being cast the Holy Spirit is there to enchant to intrigue and to attract not in an evil way but in a good way this is not an evil spirit with a design to mislead you to damn you, to condemn you this is the Spirit of God seeking to gain a hold of you so that you can enter into the heart and begin to change your life. Now, before I come to that, God's providences in, in these things are amazing. I, I seem to recollect, uh, mention here a few weeks back, uh, I could be wrong, I know I did somewhere, but how John Macdonald, uh, Dr. John Macdonald, who was known as the Apostle of the North, a minister in Ferentosh, but he was given a roving evangelistic commission. In 1822, he felt really burdened for the people of St Kilda. And the Society for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge commissioned him to go to St Kilda, but it was his own burden originally. Now, on the 7th of September, 1822, uh, a terrible storm flared up, and of course they had to anchor, to cast anchor, at Rodel in Harris. Now, his reputation as the Apostle of the North Meant that the word just spread like wildfire that he was actually there, and hundreds thousands of people gathered at Rodo to hear the man preach and he preach and he preach the word. He did so in the morning of the following day, and arrangements were quickly made to try to gather more people and to have another proclamation of the word, a placarding of Jesus Christ, as Paul says, another one in the evening now. Uh, a man called John Morrison, who of course became famous as the Harris Blacksmith, he was present in the morning and came under the well, came under the spell of the gospel. He came under the spell of the good story. And he said to a friend in the evening that he was going to go out. And the friend said, it's going to be so full of people says that you, that you won't get anywhere near. Which, by the way, is, is an interesting thing because... Uh, somewhere on the mainland, someone heard uh, the Harris blacksmith speak and was so taken by the, power, not the loudness, but the powerful penetration of his voice that he kept walking away until he said, I could hear him from over a mile speaking. But in any case, that's what he said, I, I won't get anywhere near him. And the, 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 going ahead of the Harris blacksmith said, I, I don't care. Said, I'm going, I'm going. And he went in the evening and surprisingly he was asked to sing. But that night the the Apostle of the North, John MacDonald, took us his text that um, this is a faithful saying. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And that night the the spell that had been cast in the morning became effectual in the evening and he felt his bonds were loosened and that he was a new man in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the wind blew. The wind blew. That's the astonishing thing about these things. It's the exciting thing about the providence of God. I've probably said this to you before too and I suppose every minister ends up repeating himself at some point or another but Um, it's the difference between a world where God is active and a world that you see as being just chance. Um, A world that is just chance is is just that, is it not? There's no excitement in it. How can there be? But a world that has God overseeing it is automatically an exciting world. It means that whatever happens, happens for a purpose. There's a reason. There's a planner. There's a governor. There's a ruler of all things. There's the sovereign God of heaven and earth who makes everything happen in its time, in its season, at the precise time and at the precise place. The wind blew where it blew that night because God's appointment was not for the man to reach St Kilda when he thought he would reach it. It was God's appointment to reach Harris that evening and for the man who became so influential at the time of the disruption and afterwards to be converted by the power of God. That's, that's essentially what happened when Paul went to Galatia. He says, I was sick. And you know it's because I was sick. That was the only reason I was amongst you preaching the gospel in the first place. But Paul, just like John MacDonald, sees these things not as disappointments but as appointments. And It's so often been said before, and it's so true, that uh, our disappointments are God's appointments. And we need to realize that every time you're disappointed. Disappointed by a providence? Well, turn it around and see what can be done with it. Paul took advantage of being in Galatia. The Apostle of the North took advantage of being in Rhoda. And we need to embrace our providence in faith, even if it's tough and unwelcome and we need to improve it by faith. Bunyan couldn't look after his own family when he was imprisoned for the gospel's sake in a jail in Bedford, and he was years there. Doing what? Mourning about his circumstances? No, producing the Pilgrim's Progress, which has been blessed to countless thousands in the years since he wrote it. Rutherford was exiled to Aberdeen, where he used to bemoan his silent Sabbaths but where he wrote his seraphic letters, which have been blessed to thousands of souls all over the world since, taking a providence that is contrary to plan and expectation and saying, well, it's God's providence for me. Let's see what I can do with it, however difficult or unpromising it may appear. So that's what took him to Galatia. What did he preach there? Well at the end of verse 1, he tells us that before the Galatians' eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. It's interesting that he doesn't just say that he preached Christ, but that he preached Christ crucified. It seems the Apostle uses this expression in one form or another all the time. He is eager to attach the word crucified to Christ. He's also eager to attach the word Christ to Jesus. A lot of people preach Jesus and they're comfortable preaching Jesus, not so comfortable preaching Christ. Jesus is a personal name and we can all get up close to that. Christ is an official title that reminds us that he is God's anointed king of heaven and earth. The fact that he is crucified is just a catch-all term to tell us that he came into this world to die as a substitutionary sacrifice and in so doing to make reconciliation between God in heaven and sinners upon the earth. So to preach Christ crucified is a way of telling us that he tells the story of Christ and the gospel is a good story. He tells the narrative, how the Lord was born, what he endured, what he said, the stories he spelt out in his own ministry, in his own parables, how he came to be judged and put into the hands of wicked men and crucified on the cross and how he rose again and was marvelously ascended into heaven. But he doesn't just spell the story, he tells the meaning. Why the cross? Why the necessity of death? Why the necessity of a three-year blackout? Why is this? Is the light of this world plunged into darkness? Why does he need to rise again? Why is that necessary? Why is the ascension necessary? Why is the session at God's right hand necessary? All these things are in there. It's not just a matter of telling people about Jesus it's a matter of getting to the heart of the matter I've heard it sometimes said that the, that the Christian churches, just as schools should be about the three R's that the Christian church should always be about the three R's ruin, why we're ruined <coughs> redemption, how Christ has redeemed and renewal how the Holy Spirit actually changes and transforms these three R's should be at the heart of the church all the time May they be in our hearts, ourselves personally. May we ourselves personally be taken up with our ruin, our redemption by the merit of Jesus Christ, and our constant renewal by the power of the Holy Ghost. May our congregation be taken up like that. May our neighbourhoods be taken up like that, so that these things would be our theme and our songs all the day long. That's what he preached. But notice how he preached it. We're told that he clearly portrayed Jesus Christ amongst them as crucified. Who has cast a spell on you that you should not obey the truth which you did? Because before your eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. The word portray means to placard something. You know what a placard is? You see lots of placards around these days. It's When people take up a message and they just lift it and hold it up high. Sometimes a placard has a picture of some kind and it conveys a message through a picture. Now that's what Paul did with the gospel. He placarded it. He's telling us effectively that he that he made a picture of it. The idea isn't images, sketches or dramas. I've covered all that in in, in the second commandment. The idea is that he just lifted up the gospel with boldness. Lifted it up. Wasn't ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're too often ashamed of it. And I think that's true of us all. Whether it's a desire to appear inoffensive and to appear nice and kind or Is it that we've just been affected by the the general zeitgeist out there, which is to kind of not give offence to anybody? I don't know. Or is it just cowardice? I don't know. But one thing sure, we are not as out with the gospel message as we ought to be, whether ministers or just people. Not out with it. We're just not sharing it. Not sharing it as we ought to share it. Now, you may be here, and you're sharing it often, regularly. Of course, that's not applicable to you. But my guess is that to a lot of us, it is. Well, Paul placarded it in front of the Galatian people who were busy superstitiously casting evil eyes and evil spirits. And of course, when he placards it, what he's doing, effectively, is telling a story, or casting that good spell. Because he knows whenever he raises up this good story and tells the story of the gospel, he knows that the Holy Spirit is actively working through it to enchant your mind, to fascinate your soul, to take a hold of it and to draw you to the person who is being placarded, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, there is no figure quite like him. No one has walked this earth before or since, comparable to the Lord Jesus Christ. History itself has to raise its own testimony that nobody has been so effective in the history of the world as the Lord Jesus Christ, although his ministry lasted three and a half years. Three and a half years. I often wonder at that. I've been 35 four odd years in the ministry. I have a brother here who's been a lot longer than that in the ministry. Three and a half years. It's just nothing. But in those three and a half years he changed the world. And he wouldn't have changed the world in the way that he did had he not been so attractive a figure. Not just a a person with charisma, with skill or with talent, but a person who's so full of goodness and kindness so full of the grace and the power of God that is why he was and remains such a compelling and attractive figure and that is why when the gospel is still preached there is a fascination about this man Christ Jesus how he lived and how he spoke how did the Galatians receive it Well, Paul tells us that they welcomed the preacher and the message preached. In verse uh, 14 of chapter 4, if you just move forward to chapter 4, well, just read verse 13 first to, to just get the sense. Galatians four thirteen, you know, he says, that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at first, and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ, even as though I was Christ. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? Where's it all gone? he says because I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. An unintelligible expression, unless his infirmity was in his eyes, and badly affected his eyes, to the point where they would have a reason, perhaps, as a speaker even, to despise or reject it, which he says you did not do. Now, an interesting thing, you see, is that in Greek culture at the time, a message was only as good as the speaker. And uh, if the speaker wasn't good, the message wasn't good. And the speaker even sometimes had to look the part. That's why they used to despise Paul's appearance. uh, And held that against him. Well, How how can that man really have the answer to anything? But of course, when the power of the gospel is present, that's not the way it works. Preachers disappear. Their their persons disappear. Uh, what comes to the fore is the Lord Jesus Christ and he has such a transformative power on the persons who are receiving the gospel that, that everything really changes. And, and certainly Paul himself changes to them. Uh, far from despising his appearance, they, they feel such a compassion and such an affinity that they, they would have taken out their eyeballs and given them to him for some relief. Because the bond between the preacher and the people was as close as that. Now, sometimes we can recognize that. Some of you may have passed from death to life under the ministry or proclamation of a particular minister. And that may um, form a particular bond between yourself and that person, which is right and fair enough. It, it doesn't mean um, <coughs> that it should affect your relationship uh, to all other pastors, in the in the right and proper way, because it's just a natural and understandable thing, and it's a beautiful thing if if you embrace somebody for the gospel's sake, and if your love for them is in the gospel and because of the gospel and because it is Christ-centered, it's not because of who they are. That's just nobody's anything. Nobody is anything, as Paul said to the Corinthians when they were. Beginning to divide into factions around certain preachers. Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? Who is Peter? But ministers of God through whom you believe. It's all about God, it's not about people. But that bond is a beautiful one when it exists. And when Paul was addressing the Ephesian elders for the last time, and they knew in their spirits it was the last time. They, they just knew they weren't going to see Paul again. But were told in Acts 20, after Paul had finished addressing them, that they fell on his neck and kissed him. Um, sorry, that's an error on my part. Paul had actually told them what he said to them, that he would see their face no more. But they fell on his neck and they kissed him. That's gospel love. That's what's done when the Holy Spirit um, casts the spell of Christ upon you and you're drawn into his loving and gracious fellowship. You receive the gospel. And these people, of course, received the gospel. Their hearts were changed, as Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 6, "'Because you are no sons,' he says, Because you believe the gospel, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. crying out, Abba, Father. They believed the gospel with the hearing of faith. Look at our text again. Chapter 3, verse 1, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you. This I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by your own works or by the hearing of faith? Yes, you received it by the hearing of faith. They heard the Gospel and they were changed. As Paul says elsewhere, they began in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came into their hearts, changed their life, changed their attitudes, changed the kind of people they were. Because as Paul tells the Galatians later in chapter 5, verse 22, we know these verses well if we're Christians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy and peace. The Galatians suddenly were characterized by love, joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And not only did they begin life in the Holy Spirit, but Paul tells us later that they ran well in the Holy Spirit. They made progress, quick progress. It's not a lovely thing to see when you see somebody coming from nowhere and they believe the gospel that, that maybe you've been resisting or just living comfortably with ignoring for a long, long time, their lives are transformed, filled with love, filled with joy, filled with peace, and they just grow and grow and grow. They learn quickly, they grow quickly, they run well. A wonderful church uh, change produced by the Holy Spirit of God through the good news. Now I wonder, before I just close, if you yourself have been brought to the point, or are even brought to the point, been brought to the point where you are beginning to be enchanted or fascinated by the gospel yourself. I'm choosing these words carefully because they come from the same source as the word, the spell, or casting the spell. To enchant is for something to improve you, Be fascinated by something again is to be drawn like that irresistibly towards (laughs) them. All the bad sense is there, but the good sense is there. You know, it's very strange. If you were to ask me what are the signs you know that that, that the Spirit may be working in me, I I I would say this pretty much first and foremost: that you are being drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ as he is preached to you in the gospel. You're getting ears. And you can pretty much see that you're getting eyes, because the story is starting to fit. Now, it may not be moving your heart, but it's gripped your mind, and it's starting to fit together. You know, I remember, before I became a Christian, I thought that the Bible was very far from being one piece of work that... um, fitted together like that, I thought nobody could make that fit together. Of course, when you become a Christian, you, you just start to see it. It's like these jigsaws. If you if you stand very close to them, you can't see it. It's like a painting like that, really. If you stand very close, you're too close. As you move away, you begin to see it. The whole thing does come together. The jigsaw comes together, piece by piece. There are bits of it that look as though they don't belong. That doesn't belong here. How, how does the ritual of Leviticus. What does that have to do with the church in Galatia? But the bits, you move the bits in and they all start to fit together. This thing that Lucas thought it didn't belong, it belongs. And it all focuses on one central point, which is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) Is that beginning to charm and to fascinate yourself? Are you being drawn not just to the Bible, but to the Christ of the Bible? Because There is none like him. Are you spellbound by the old, old story, which someone once called, of course, the greatest story ever told? And so when Paul preached the gospel, you had the first congregation in the Gaeldach, which was established in the land of Galatia. There's another one here tonight. And we pray that the gospel would come to you too. Uh, we'll come back to these things, God willing, next door. Stay even let us pray. <laughs> o Lord, O God, immortal, invisible, the God who is surrounded by light and fortune whom no man hath seen or can see, we nonetheless give thanks that you have made yourself known in the person of your Son, he took bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. So the body he wore was indeed one that shared bone and flesh with us. We pray, as he is placarded in the proclamation of the word, that we may come under the spell of this old, old story, which is nonetheless always new. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would draw us to see Christ, not as a man who lived long ago in history, but a man who lived and died and lives again, and lives forevermore, to save and to make intercession for his people. You know that the longing of the hearts of all of your people in here tonight is that none amongst us would perish, but that we might be saved and how glorious it would be if this spell was cast. And we pray that you would hinder the evil one who would seek to cast an altogether different kind of spell. Hear as we pray in the precious name of Christ, O Lord. Amen. I would close singing in Psalm 89 at verse Fourteen, Psalm eighty-nine, and verse fourteen. In verse fourteen, God is a God of justice and judgment, but here He comes with mercy, accompanied with truth, and He's coming towards us. And in verse 15, the people who recognize this sound in the gospel are greatly blessed because they recognize that joyful sound of God coming. As a result, they will ever go on in the brightness of God's face. And they in thy name shall all the day rejoice exceedingly. And in thy righteousness shall they exalted be on high. Uh, 14 to 17, four stanzas we stand to sing.
1: Amen. Justice and justice